So truth, right? Let's talk through it. Like, what is it? Like, this isn't the first time somebody asks what is truth. Like, we know this question's been around for a long time. Like, if you go to college, you're required to attend a philosophy class where they're going to ask you this constantly, what is truth? Like, I remember when I was in college, man, like, the guy who was in there was a full-blown atheist, and he challenged every believer in that room, and every believer lost to him. And when I say lost, I mean left angry and just stormed out of the room. That's what I mean when I say lost. Like, he was able to rival them up so strongly that they got so angry that they would just leave the room. Like, we know Socrates asked this question, Plato asked this question, Pilate asked the king of kings, what is truth, yeah? And Pilate's like, man, like, what is the truth? Like, in all honesty, like, what is truth? And people will say that he was doing this in a thousand different directions. Like, Here's the sting. Like the, the, the picture of Pilate historically is this. He was mean, he had no compassion, and he threw the hammer down on you whenever he wanted. Like that's how he ruled. Like that's him historically. So when Jesus is standing in front of him and he says, what is truth? Like that's the heart that's coming out of him. It's like I see truth all around me. In my military might, in war, in power, in prestige, in politics, like what is the truth? You know a funny story about this? About four weeks, I'm with, my, I'm with a guy who I've known for 40-something years. And he's a Vietnam veteran, and we're sitting there just talking. Never talked about Vietnam ever with him. And here's what he says to me. Somebody comes on TV talking about the VA, and he's like, man, he goes, you know what bothers me about this the most? He said, all of my friends use and abuse that system for all it's worth. He said, even if they ever, never stepped foot on the battleground, he said, they just use it and abuse it. And he said, I will not do that. He said, but here's the thing. He said, you want to know what's the worst about being a Vietnam veteran? Is the fact that you survived and all of my friends die. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that is that I get to relate because that's called survivor's guilt. The reason we know that is because of the way we're walking in our lives right now. Now put yourself in that context with Pilate. Like how much war had Pilate seen? Like how many people had Pilate killed and how many people had Pilate watched be killed? How many of Pilate's friends were killed? And do we think survival's guilt is just something for Americans these days? Or do we think at some level that Pilate's heart got hard? And that's why he was so sinister. Like, there's always a reason why people act the way that they act. And so when Pilate says, man, what is the truth? Because I've got everything that I've been taught to have, and inside, I'm hard. Like, my wife knows it, the Jews know it, Rome knows it. Like, what is the truth? And so can I, can I move you out of his culture into ours? Can I, can I do that? So walking down this path going, okay, what is the truth for us? Like, what's, what's truth for us? Like, what do people believe in American culture today? And so I found the latest poll. I don't know if it's the latest poll, but it's the one I found, right? Came out of Princeton. It's two years old, June 2014, right? Done by a group of secular people, not believers, right? You know this by the way they wrote the title. And here's their conclusion. Here's what they say. They say 28% of Americans believe the Bible is the actual word of God and should be taken literally. 50% of Americans believe it's the inspired word of God, but not to be taken literally. 
which makes a total of 78% of Americans consider the Bible to be holy to some degree. That's their words, not mine. Now, would you ever guess that by watching TV? Like, it blew my mind. Like, I kind of rejoiced about this going, okay, what, what I'm reading there is that 8 out of 10 Americans have the word in common, although they may think differently about it. Yeah? Do you, do you see that? Okay, so let's go just a little bit further. So basically, out of all believers, like basically one-third of them believe the word is inspired, like every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord comes from the throne room of heaven. And two-thirds of people who would call themselves Christians, man, don't necessarily believe that, right? And so I know people in that category. So let me give you an example of what they would say. They're like, man, I believe fully that Jesus came out of the grave, but I don't necessarily want to take Jonah, right? Like, I believe fully that Jesus walked around, that people saw him, but I don't know that water really came out of a rock. Like, it's kind of a fun conversation to get into with them. And so I I live in the camp of the first one. Like, I believe every word comes from the throne of heaven. And so the question becomes, it's like, what do you do with this? Right? Again, the immaturity of my P, like for you guys that are in discipling, wants to immediately go and attack. Like, he just wants to go and attack. And so I just begin to go down this road as I'm chewing on it, going, okay, how do I, how do I challenge the 50% of Americans out there who believe that it's the inspired word of God, but it's not to be taken literally? Like, how do I go around that? Like, I start thinking of churches who believe this. I start thinking about people who believe this. I, I start thinking about all these things, and I go, how can I attack this? Like, how can I just challenge this? How can I make people think differently, if you will? You ever been there? And all Wednesday, man, I'm just chewing on this. Man, as surely as the Lord lives, does he not meet you where you need to be met? Does he not? He does three things in my life simultaneously. I'm not willing to share those with you all today. But he does, he does three things in my life simultaneously at that moment to let me know that he's right there with me. Like, he's right there with me. And so I'm going to show you what he showed me. I came across this quote. It's going to be up on the screen. And here's what it says. The word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion they have caged him for his preservation, shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. That's me on Wednesday morning. He says, these mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all of its lion-like majesty and it will soon clear away its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Amen to that? And so I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen for you. And I'm going to read it again to you. Just so you know, this particular line, it killed a man the other day. You want to know why? Because the man got in the cage and approached him in the wrong way. And the tagline on the end is like, the line is perfectly cleared. The man did wrong. And so now we're retraining our staff. And so as you look at this, I'm going to read this to you again. 
The Word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion. They have caged him for his preservation, shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and their spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all of its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear away its own way and will ease itself of its adversaries. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon was prince of, prince, of preachers, prince of preachers, as they call him. And so here comes the story for me. It's silly to think that a man who will live 80 years can defend the Lord. It is silly that a culture will take the Lord out. It is silly to believe that the Lord will not finish what he started. We are here today, gone tomorrow. Cultures shift to the left, cultures shift to the right. One day this is cool, the next day it's not. But who shakes the Lord? What I love about the heart of Spurgeon is like, man, he had a Jesus is Lord kind of mentality to him. And so I'm like, what do I do? Like, what do I get to do with the next bit of our time here? Well, it says for me to get out of the way and let the gospel preach itself, yeah? And so let's do that. Before I do, I'm going to ask the Lord to come. And as I'm reminded of the story in Acts, it's like when the Lord preached to his disciples on their road to Emmaus, what did he say? He started connecting the gospel for them from Old Testament to where they were then. And it said, did our hearts not burn within us? Did our hearts not burn within us? Because they understood, like the Spirit opened up their eyes and they began to understand that Jesus was everything he said he was and everything that they couldn't understand who he was. And so as I began to preach the gospel to you, if your heart burns within you, then let it burn. Let it burn. Who am I compared to the Lord? I've got nothing to say to you except for his word. Other than that's just ignorance, yeah? And so, Lord, I would ask you in the name of your son for us to get out of the way, for us to open the cage and to let your word come forth, and to preach you and not defend you. Who am I to think that I can defend you? Who is the church to think that they can defend you? Lord, I would ask in the name of your Son that your word would be all that we would need. It would be all that we would need. Everyone in this house said, So as we get rolling, I want to give you just one little precursor here like people will challenge stuff all the time but here's where i want to lay some groundwork for you the power of the four gospels is that there were massive people who saw it happen 
Like if you read through the four Gospels, this is, does it not say, I am an eyewitness to this? Like that's one thing that hasn't changed in our culture. Like if you're standing on the side of the road and you see a hit and run and you can identify who the hit and run guy was, that's it. The man goes to jail. He'll go to court, may go to trial, but if you're there to say, I saw him, he's done. If you witness some murder, same story. There's no 48 hours. There's no cold case. Like you stand before a jury and you're like, I saw him, and that's it. The same worked in their culture. It's nothing different. They said in order for something to be true, we need, the, we need the testimony of at least two people. We prefer three. And that's why you read in the Testament of the Gospels, it's like, I am an eyewitness. There are 500 people who saw the risen Lord walking around. Go ask them. Like, you read this over and over, even to their detriment. Like, if you open it up and you see when Jesus came out of the tomb and it was just the women who saw him, like in their culture, you're ripping that out because women had no rights then. It still didn't change the fact that they were the eyewitnesses regardless of their power. And so when we bring something from the Gospels, what we're saying to you is that there were men and women up to as many as 500 at one time that saw this stuff happening. Like, it's how we do history. It's like when people see it, they write it down. And that's how we know anything there is to know about it. So challenge it all you want. But at the end of the day, you're challenging eyewitness accounts of what they saw. Yeah? And so on the day, on the day of Christ, in a 24-hour period prior to and into his crucifixion, I want to read to you some stuff that happened to him or was said about him at minimum, at minimum, 400 years before he ever walked on this planet. Is that fair? So I'm going to read to you at minimum what happened to him or what was said about him 400 years prior to this time. Fair? Psalms 41. Minimum, 400 years. He was betrayed by his friend. He will be betrayed by his friend, fulfilled in Matthew 26, verse 49. Zechariah 11, the price of the Savior's head will be 30 pieces of silver. Fulfilled, Matthew 26, verse 15. Zechariah 11, the blood money will be scattered on the floor of my temple. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, verse 5. Zechariah 11, the money was used to buy a potter's field. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, verse 7. Zechariah 13, he will be forsaken and deserted by his disciples. Fulfilled. Mark 14, verse 50. Psalms 35, he will be accused by false witnesses. Fulfilled, Matthew 26, verse 59 through 60. Isaiah 53, he will remain silent before his accusers. Matthew 27, verse 12, fulfilled. Isaiah 53, he will be wounded and bruised. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, verse 26, when they beat him to the point where he was unrecognizable. Psalm 69, he will be hated without cause, fulfilled. John 15, verse 25, says particularly in that text, it's like they had no reason to hate him other than the fact that he was upsetting their Jewish customs. Isaiah 15, he will be struck and spit upon, fulfilled. Matthew 26, verse 67. Isaiah 53, he will be mocked. Ridiculed and rejected, fulfilled, Matthew 27, verse 27 through 31, John 7, verse 5, and verse 48. Psalms 109, he will collapse from his weakness, fulfilled, Luke 23, verse 26. 
Psalms 22, he will be mocked with these words. He saves others, let him save himself. The exact words that came from the Pharisees' mouth as they rode by him completed Matthew 27, verse 39 through 43. Psalms 109, people will shake their heads in disdain towards him, fulfilled Matthew 27, verse 39. Psalms 22, people will stare at him on the cross, fulfilled Luke 23, verse 35. Isaiah 53, he will be executed among sinners, fulfilled Matthew 27, verse 38. Psalms 22, his hands and his feet will be pierced, fulfilled Luke 23, verse 33. Isaiah 53, he will pray for those who have persecuted him. Fulfilled, Luke 23, verse 24, as the nails went in his hands, did he not say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Psalms 38, his friends and his family will stand from afar and watch. Fulfilled, Luke 23, verse 49. Psalms 22, his garments will be divided and they will cast lots for his clothes. Fulfilled, John 19, 23 through 24, by the Roman soldiers who knew none of this. What was it they said? They said, this piece of linen has no sewing in it, so let's not tear it, but cast lots for it. Psalm 69, he will cry out that he thirsts and will be given gall and vinegar to drink. Fulfilled, John 19, verse 28. Psalms 31, he will commit his spirit to God. Fulfilled, Luke 23, verse 46. Psalms 34, his bones will be left unbroken. John 19, verse 33, fulfilled. So much playing into that with the Passover lamb. It says, as darkness covered the land, the order was given to, to break the bones of the men who were on the cross. It says, but when they came to Jesus, they decided not to break his legs because he was already dead. They decided. Psalms 22, his heart will rupture, fulfilled. John, 20, John 19, verse 34. Zechariah 12, his side will be pierced, fulfilled. John 19, verse 34. Amos 8, darkness will cover the land in the middle of the day. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, verse 45. Isaiah 53, he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, 57 through 60. Daniel 9, the anointed one will die 483 years from the day Artaxerxes declared the rebuilding of the temple in 444 BC. I say to you, go get a calendar. Psalm 16, he will be raised from the dead. Fulfilled, Acts 2, verse 31. 500 men saw him. Psalm 68, he will ascend into heaven. Fulfilled, Acts 1, verse 9. Psalms 110, he will be seated at the right hand of God and clothed with power and majesty. Hebrews 1, 3. All that happened in 24 hours. Like, we haven't even touched the things that were written about him, about his birth, and about him walking on the earth. Now, let me push on you just a little bit further. All in all, it says Jesus fulfilled 60 major prophecies with 270 additional ramifications, all of which were made 400 years at least before his birth. The fact that he could do all of these in one day, these 31 prophecies in one day, I'm going to put a man's picture on the screen for you. His name is Peter Stoner. He submitted this paper to the review of the American Scientific Board. The American Scientific Board said, man, your math is accurate, and we agree with you. And here's what he said. 
He said the odds of one man doing eight of these in one day. Like if you want to include the Roman guards, Pilate, the Pharisees, like all of these people who had to be involved in these, in these things being fulfilled, he's like the odds of eight of them happening are one times 10 to the 17th power. And I don't know how you pronounce that number. Yeah? I don't know how you pronounce it. And so here's what I want to lean into you on. This is what you believe. Like, this is what the Word teaches. Like, Jesus doesn't say, believe the truth. He says that I am the truth. He says that no man comes to me. No one goes to the Father unless I draw them and unless they come through me. Like, this is what we believe. People walk in the door all the time and they go, man, I believe in God. Here's the deal. The enemy will take your belief. He will chew it up and he will spit it out. He says the demons believe that. What he's looking for you to do is to move into conviction on what you believe. Because the enemy will never shift your conviction. Like when it becomes right in your head, you begin to move. And when you do, nothing can shake you from that. Like in my preaching, like I don't care what you think about me. Like we preach for the glory of the Lord. The problem with our church is this, is that for the last 25 years, we have sought to become relevant. Like we have dumbed everything down so that we will be relevant to the culture. Do you ever see that in the word? The Lord has always been counterculture with us so that when the world is broken and cannot figure out what to do, they come to the church so that we can show them there is a better way and it doesn't look like the world. We have become so focused on being relevant that we are so irrelevant to everyone. And I will say to you, let your belief move you into conviction. First Colossians says that Jesus is supreme over all things. And in your mind, it has to become truth. Like he is supreme over all things. Like all things have been put under his lordship, including you. And the reason you get stuck is because you will not do that. Like you just get stuck. And you're like, man, I'm just, I don't know what to do. I'm just stuck. And I would say to you, wherever you're stuck, submit it to the lordship of him. It's the way it was meant to be. The church is not about you. It has never been about you. The reason we have made it about you is so that you'll come and we can count you as a number. And for that, man, pure repentance needs to happen from all churches. The church is about forming you into who God has made you to be so that you can help inform somebody else. Fair? And the moment you choose not to, the moment you choose not to invest in someone's life or to allow someone to invest in yours, I will tell you you're stuck. You are full on stuck. You cannot live in all the promises of what the Lord has done and not move into the things he's asked you to move into. When he said for you to go and make disciples, he wasn't joking around. Now, here's the problem. Because we screwed around with this text for the last 50 years, no one knows how to. And so I would say to you, stick around and we'll teach you. And you won't be that good at it. But you've got to keep fighting to make yourself better at it. The more you choose to form people, the better you become. And what happens in your life is this, is that eventually the Lord will commission you. He'll commission you to make disciples who can make more. And you'll know you've been commissioned because people will respond differently around you. 
and you'll respond differently around them. They will not be big in your life. The Lord will be large and they will be small. And you will love them because the Lord has asked you to. And that, my friends, is the gospel message. Like, yes, He loves you. Yes, He died on the cross for you. Yes, all the things in Ephesians has been promised to you. But it is not about you. And it has never been. And as long as you continue to make it about you, you will be exhausted. You will be exhausted. And I will tell you, man, that if you're the center of anything in your life right now, I would ask you, how's it going for you? Like, in all honesty, like, how's it going? And I would challenge you, man, that if you make the Lord part of that, like if you give him lordship over that, I promise you, you'll find your freedom. Did he not say that I came to set the captive free? Did he not say that he came to give the blind sight? Like he came to do these things for us. It's not always physical. Like he called his disciples to find out who they were. And then when they figured it out, what did he do? He left and unleashed them to the world. Did he not tell you in John 17 when he prayed for all of his believers? He said, listen, he goes, I came and I finished the mission you gave me to do. Most people believe that the cross was his mission. I will say yes. But when he says in his own language, I finished the mission you gave me to do. What was it? When you read it in context, you'll realize that he spent all of his time with his disciples because he knew that they were the catalyst for making the gospel move. How does it move when he's in heaven? And so I would ask you, where are you spending your time? Like, I can preach this message a thousand times, but what you hear, you cannot unhear. And then you become responsible for it. And when you become responsible for it, you're required to do something with it. We don't preach up here for our own goodness. We preach for you. We preach for the glory of God's name and so that you will move into it and live for it. Because when you do, will you not find your life? Will you not find your life? And here's what I would say to you. Who can stop him? Like, who will stop the Lord? Do you remember when Paul sat in prison? He's like, Rome owns me right now. They're fixing to behead me. But when you read in his books, he says, listen, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm not a prisoner of these people. You know why he says that? Because you look at today's culture and you say, where's Rome at? And where's Jesus' gospel? Like Rome is done. But yet Jesus' word continues to move forward. Paul understood. He's like, man, listen, nobody owns me. Nobody but the Lord owns me. And so, man, I just want to, oh my gosh, I'm getting fired up. I got time. I'm going to preach some more. Here's the deal. You know what I'm learning right now? Like, like, when you move past John 17 and move into John 18, none of this will be on the screen. I'm just going to preach it. But here's what he says. He says, listen, he says, Father, after I'm done praying for my disciples, listen, he says, Father, I have not lost any of them except for the one to perdition. And he says, they have been saved by that name that you gave me. I have been saved by that name, that name that you gave me. Now think about this. Like if you read in the Old Testament about the story of where the, where the triune met, where they sat together and they said, you know what? There's going to come a time where we're going to have to send somebody, we're going to have to send the Lamb for all of the world's sins. What shall we call you? Like what name shall we call you? 
What name will you enter the earth and you will have a name that by that name that all men will come to salvation? What name shall that be? Can you imagine having that conversation? Like whatever name that we choose, this will be the name from that day on that every person who ever walks this planet will need to call on for salvation. People will worship it. They will bow down before it like they will break in it. Like people will lose their chains in it. Like people will give their lives for it. What name will that be? And Jesus says, listen, it's already powerful. I've already saved people by that name, even though I have not gone to the cross. Blow your mind. Pick it up again in John 15 where he tells all the disciples that they're clean because of the name. What is that name? Say it. Say it. They knew when they formed that meeting that at some point that every man would call on his name. That on October 30th, 1999, that Chris Boyks would call on the name of Jesus, even though he didn't know what it meant. That Chad would call on the name of Jesus, even though that you would call on the name of Jesus, even though that on this day that you would call on the name of the Lord, even though you don't know. And they determined this well before you were ever born but they said listen this is the name this is the name like can you imagine the power in that name for the triune godhead to stand there and go it's going to be jesus like that's going to be your name son of god it's going to be jesus and when you perish on that cross and come out of that grave millions of people will call on your name for salvation some of you sitting in this room right now There's such power in that. That on October 30th, 1999, I would have no clue about the power of the Lord. But even in so doing, just calling on his name would save my soul. Nobody around, nobody preaching the gospel to me, had no language, yet still the power of that name. Yeah? And so I say to you, man, who can stop the Lord? He saves who he wills. He changes what he changes. Like all of these things that I just read to you, all of these little governors and these little magistrates and these little Roman soldiers, like they were all in the palm of his hand. Was it not Jesus who said to Pilate, listen, dude, you've got no power over me except for what we've already handed you. Like we handed this to you back when, probably when they were defining what my name was going to be. And what does he tell him? He says, here's the deal, dude. I am who you say I am. And there will come a time where you will see me on the clouds coming in all my glory, yeah? Let me tell you, that day will come. This is what he says about himself. This is what Paul writes about him. It's the premise of who Jesus is. He is the son. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, by him, for him. Yeah? Like we just talked, like all things have been created by him, for him, through him. He's like, man, here's the deal. Like I'm creating you. You're going to beat me, but I've already ordained it. I've created you. You're going to rise up as as the prince of Persia. You will be the king, but I own you. Like, I've already given this to you. Like, we can do this all day long of where the Lord has ordained the steps of all people. 
He's ordained the steps of Obama and the steps of Clinton and the steps of whoever becomes president. Like he is in charge. No one else. And he says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body and the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So that in everything he might be supreme. Supreme. Like I'm telling you, there is nothing in this world that he does not have dominion over. Nothing. The challenge for you is like when you walk out of here, you see with your physical eyes and quit looking with your spiritual eyes. And I would pray for you today that man, like we would continue to look with our spiritual eyes. He says, for God himself was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on this earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you, Chris, were alienated from God and were his enemy. Because of your evil behavior, but now... He has reconciled you by Jesus' physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope that has been held out in the gospel. For this is the gospel that you have heard that has been proclaimed to you to every creature in heaven, under heaven, in the earth, and under the sea and which I, Paul, have now become a servant. Yeah? Man, Does he not echo this in Revelation? The same story in Revelation, he says. He says, then I looked up and what did I see? He said, I saw every creature in heaven and under heaven and in the sea and under the sea and in the ground and on the ground. And they were all encircling the tomb or the throne with the the creatures and the elders. And it said in a loud voice, they said, what? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and wisdom and might. And he said, then he heard this huge voice that with all that was in them saying, to him who sits onto the throne, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Is that not the truth? And so what do we do with that, man? Your belief will never get you very far. It's when your belief becomes conviction in your soul that changes the course of your life, yeah? It changes the course of who you are. And so, man, I just implore you, like as I pray for you here, I pray for myself and for my family, that we would move beyond our belief into our conviction in who Jesus says he is. He doesn't say believe in what I say. He says believe in me. He says, I am the truth. Everything that rose out of me is the truth. It's been that way from the dawn of ages, and it will continue to be that day when, that, when this world passes on. There's no need to defend the word. The word defends itself, yeah? Yeah. Who will stop the Lord? Who'll stop him? You get four people who believe this, nothing stops you. You put two people who believe this, nothing stops you. So I would ask you, man, what stops you? What stops you? Man, I'll pray for us. Well, if the church will return back to where it's supposed to be, 
like we, be, we quit becoming people-centric church. That the United States become a Jesus-centered church. Like we get caught up in his fame and his glory and his renown and his power. We become more and more irrelevant to the culture so we become more and more the hope of the culture. Yeah? Yeah. And so, Lord God, Father, we just sit here with you. Man, we let you just breathe into us. Like the power of your name that you decided on. Before there was Moses, before there was Abraham, before any of these things, your name was. It's the same name that all tribes, tongues, and nations proclaim your sovereignty and your glory, Lord. Father, I would ask you, man, to instill in our souls that we make disciples who can make more. That Sunday morning is just a place, man, to give your name glory, to speak the truth in worship, and the hard work comes when we invest our lives in the people. As messy as it is, Lord, you did it. Like, push it into us. Like, Lord, everyone that's in brown to green, like, if you're in brown to green, can I get you just to stand up? I'm just going to pray for you. Lord, these men and women who have been released to make disciples, who've been discipled themselves, God, I would ask in the name of your son that you would bring them power, that people would not be bigger than them, that they would be the parent in the room, that, Lord, you would move them even faster in walking in truth and grace, that they would know when to push, and they would know when to back off and give grace. Lord, I would pray that you would bring them people of peace who will listen to them and not fight them. Lord, I would pray that you would make their hands holy, that they would multiply their lives. That Lord, that in the name of your son, when you said to go and make disciples, like you're doing this, and that they would just, just enjoy you and they would fight the good fight. And Lord, that when they got tired, that you would throw them breadcrumbs and let them know that you're moving in this. Father, I would pray that their hearts would stay committed to you. That, Lord, you would remove their fear. That you would become way bigger than the people they're discipling. That they would take their responsibility to their disciples well. And they would rest that they're not responsible for them. And, Lord, I would ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. That name that you gave him. If you're in a discipling relationship, can I get you to stand up? Like if you're being discipled right now, can I get you to stand up? Father, I would lift these guys up to you as well. That Father, you would do imaginably more. That they would shake hands with your spirit. That they would say yes to you. That they would be open, honest, and vulnerable in these groups. That they would realize that they're the hope of the world. And Father, that you're in charge of transformation and they're in charge of obedience. Lord, I would ask for them to submit well to their parents. And Lord, I would ask for them to be released to multiply their lives as well. That they would be fruitful in their endeavors. They would be fruitful, God. Lord, let us be a church that you're pleased with. If you haven't stood up yet, can I get you to stand up for me for just a second?
And Father, for these men and women who just stood up, like wherever they're at in their walk, like Lord, that you would impress in their souls that even the demons believe and they shudder. That Father, that you would protect them as they walk out of here. That Father, they would recognize, man, that it is a command of you to make disciples. And that they would try. Like wherever they would go, Lord, that their, law, their words would be salty. Lord, I would ask that if they're riding the fence with you, like today would be their day of conviction. Where they don't pray a prayer, but Lord, that they commit their lives to you. That they move beyond believing to convicting. Like they would change their mindset. That they would love you with their heart, soul, and mind. That they would love you with their heart, soul, and mind. That they would either continue to or would see how good you are. That they would taste and see. That, Father, they would be able to proclaim your name as we sing. Father, that they would put hope inside their heart. They would become living vessels. Just jars of clay with your light inside. God, I would ask these things in the name of your Son. You say the things that bring your kingdom, that gives you joy to give them. And so, Lord, I would ask these things in the name of Jesus for them. In the name of Jesus. And until you come in glory, until the lion and the lamb lay down, until the babies play with the serpents, until when the ground gives back its fruit, to where we see you face to face, there's no more need for prophecy on that day. There's no more need for wisdom because you'll fill us full of it. Lord, that our lives would matter for your reign. Your kingdom already exists. Nothing stops it. God, let us walk in that. You are good. I praise your name for saving my soul. I praise your name for saving theirs. And Lord, if you've got any saving to do, I'd ask again in the name of Jesus that you would do it. And everyone in this house said,